Hi, I'm Sean Geerty. I'm past president and founder of American Prairie, and now the creator and host of the podcast. The answers are out there, and this is the Prairie Farm Podcast. I'm Doug Duran, a landowner trying to be a conservationist. I'm Tabitha Panis, president of the Iowa Prairie Network. I'm Ryan Callahan, director of conservation at Meat Eater. Angela from Axe and Root Homestead. Chris Helzer, the Nebraska director of science for the Nature Conservancy. Judd McCollum from Working Class Bowhunter. Taylor Keene, founder of Sacred Seed. Ryan Bryson of Bryson Wildlife. This is Luke Fritch. This is James Holtz. Joy Van Weingarten. Sam Sobel. Phil Ebert. Julie Meachin. And you are listening to the Prairie Farm. The Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm Podcast. Prairie Farm Podcast. Welcome to the Prairie Farm Podcast. Sean, what immediately comes to your mind when you hear the word or read the word prairie? Well, you know, it's a, it's a good question. It's a, it's a provocative question because believe it or not, the first thing that comes to mind is the, the French uh, mm. derivative of the word prairie, which is uh, actually for us, it's a wrong translation, but it kind of gets down to beautiful lawn. Mm. It means almost, mm. like, almost like a painting by Monet. So the first thing that comes up for me, oddly enough, is not about science and, you know, the microbes in the soil and all that stuff like that. I know yeah. a good bit about that, but it comes across to me first is the aesthetics. And uh, first it zooms up, zooms in close, and then the aperture widens and I see far, far away, you know, rolling topography and that sort of thing. But to me, it looks like one of the most beautiful works of art I can possibly visualize. Mm, that's beautiful. Very well said. Yeah, that is good. Uh, what's your favorite? What's your favorite season of the prairie in terms of beauty? I think it's been changing over the last 20 years or more that I've been involved with American Prairie. Um, the early fall used to really hit mm -hmm. it. It was very interesting to watch, particularly I'm a big, um, very interested, my wife and I are, are birders, and watching the birds begin to gather up and head out uh, for mm. the Gulf of Mexico, for the Mendocino Coast, for Southern Argentina, if you're a Swainson's hawk. You know, and realize it's I, this migration stuff is so fascinating. So I used to just love the late summer. The bison rut is almost over. Um, the elk rut's going to start in a couple of weeks, and everything is moving in certain ways. It's not the most spectacularly beautiful from a standpoint of green this time on the prairie, but everything is on. Everything is moving and changing, and hasn't quite settled down to tuck in for winter yet. And but lately that has been a little more difficult whether we have these raging forest fires in Montana and we're often really smoked out in late mm -hmm. August or early September. So you just try to get through the smoke smoke season. And uh, sometimes you luck out, we get some rain, put those fires out. But uh, I have to say there's two that are top contenders for my favorite. One is obviously on the counterpart of the spring for us. That's right about, the first of June or so, and it's mm -hmm. as green as Ireland, where I've been a number of times. And looking at the, it's it's, and and, and within that greenness, you also see movement because mm. you know different kinds of passerines and flycatchers are coming back from wherever they were in the Caribbean or South America or the Gulf Coast of Texas or whatever, and you know they're jetting by and they're all looking for territory and a lot of squabbling going on. Um, uh, but then you know, in three weeks or so. 
pronghorn are beginning to get, have their twin fawns and they're looking for places to try to keep them safe from coyotes and everything. Everybody's shucking and jiving out there from a territory standpoint and survival standpoint with little ones, um, uh, whatever, their, whatever their offspring might be, and they're taking care of that. It's, it's interesting to watch all that kind of movement, getting ready for the summer, getting ready for calorie consumption. And so I do, I do like that. And uh, if we're lucky, mosquitoes haven't started. So that's very important. Mm. That <laughs> yeah. kind of comes around, but that's more You're of a July, early July thing. You are the first person I've ever heard when asked, like, what's their favorite part of the prairie or season of the prairie to talk about the animals. And, and part of that is because uh, you have been able to have a, you've been able to be around a large enough prairie where you can see an animal life cycle. Usually it's kind of like, yeah, sometimes I see pheasants in the corner of my in the corner of my field. You yeah, know, yeah, and, yeah. and people that's are like kind point. of excited about that, but you get to see like full life cycles and that's really, really cool. Yeah. yeah. And it's one of the, you know, there's four places left on earth that have this kind of intact prairie still there. The Kazakh step, uh, the Mongolian step, Patagonian step, and right here in the Northern Great Plains. And this is a huge, large swath remaining of intact prairie. And mm -hmm. that's exciting to I mean, I go out and I see things, the different, the sages coming up, some of the flowers, I'm a painter, some of the stuff that I paint behind me here, the uh, wildflowers are starting to come out, the cactuses. Uh, and uh, a, so from a plant life standpoint, it's it's phenomenal. But then you, I look at that, honestly, I look at the, the, the variety of plant life. And to me, it looks, what's so exciting about it is it creates all these various niches that allow very species from birds to big ungulates to predators to be out on this landscape but they all find a different niche yeah and for instance sometimes we're watching a bison you know three or four bison moving across along a hillside you're slowly eating their way across and you know not long later our pronghorn go in the exact direction hmm. opposite direction going this way from right to left across that, cool. that same hillside but if you understand the floor, floor the, the flora you realize those bison were selecting about 80% grass and about 20% forbs. The the pronghorn are selecting for about 80% forbs and about 20% grass. They're finding different niches on the exact yeah. same hillside. And it's really fun. It's like being on a huge coral reef. Everybody's living on this coral reef, but they all find their own their way of operating on it. And it's um, and you know, ways to stay safe. Uh, from predators or other predators that are after them, ways to keep their offspring safe and finding the food supply that they need. And everyone's picking something different, even though it all looks, if you look a long ways out, it looks uniform. It's not uniform. Yeah. It's extraordinarily complex. Oh, and yeah. That, makes a lot of, that complexity makes it fun. Man, thousands mm -hmm. and thousands, if not millions of relationships going on in there from microbe level all the way to, you know, a charismatic yeah. buffalo and yeah, crazy yeah. stuff. Yeah. We take people out. We take people out sometimes touring who have never been out to the prairie, and they'll say, "What's that? What's that? The pronghorn?" They go, "My gosh, that looks like an exotic African animal with the colors. Mm -hmm. and it can run sixty miles an hour and all that kind of stuff." And but you know, we have we do have some we do have some charismatic stuff out there, two thousand pound bull bison and things like that, and, and beautiful elk and whatever, and some of the amazing raptors that are out there. But one of the things is so much fun, like you just said. Uh, Nicholas is there are bison wallows so they go out there and create mm. these big dust wallows they just roll back and forth and use the same ones year after year and they make new ones big big bulls come in and slice the prairie the sod open with their horns they start to roll in the dirt 
puts dust on them for bugs and all different kinds of things. Helps them get the hair off when they're when they're not molting, but they're shedding, you know, at some other season. But those wallows then become a little uh, uh, aquatic environment in themselves. The prairies where we are are high bentonite, high percentage of bentonite soil, so they don't percolate very well. A little mm -hmm. bit of rain creates this little pond, a little bit bigger than a bison, <laughs> if, mm -hmm. if you can think about that. And then those little ponds at the edges creates this micro environment of all kinds of aquatic species that then become food for grassland birds. And they come and sit at the edges of those, and there's hundreds of them, and there should be tens of thousands or millions of these wallows across the prairie eventually, or it used mm. to be. And that create and just these, you know, the bison create these wallows, little pond happens, all this life starts to happen in this miniature pond, and pretty soon the birds are going crazy because it's created a, a really cool uh smorgasbord buffet for them and it's uh, really interesting how the littlest things can benefit from the biggest things and vice versa yeah yeah what a what a beautiful what a beautiful i i think what we could say there summary of a healthy prairie ecosystem um yeah you know we need to introduce introduce sean here so if you're tuning in you're bothered that we haven't introduced our guest yet we're, we're going to do that but i don't want to forget this question that just popped in my head i've never thought of this before but the way you described all those different uh interacting components of the ecosystem there <clears throat> has there been any research that american prairie's done on like the health of um let's go with the the, the pronghorn antelope like a pronghorn antelope living in on the, you know, this in, fairly intact piece of prairie. I'm sure there's had to be some prairie reconstruction work you, that has had to be done over the years there as well. Um, and we'll get into where the, the land has come from uh, through the years with, with American prairie. But, but uh, 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 what so seems to be a very well-functioning ecosystem you know, I was talking with a friend recently about um, the we were comparing like uh, confinement raised poultry to uh, um, free range poultry. Um, we, for whatever reason, the other day my wife went grocery shopping at a store, and the only eggs they had left on the shelf, I think it was probably related to the bad winter weather we've had, where delivery routes were disrupted a little bit and so forth. The only eggs available were, um, these, these, uh, large confinement operation eggs. And we normally either, we have friends who have chickens who usually give us eggs or, uh, we buy, you know, the, the, the free range eggs. And I went to crack the egg to make myself, uh, like, a you know, just a fried egg for breakfast. And I like, you know, shattered the shell like immediately. I was like, whoa, that was super brittle, you know? And then I noticed the uh, color difference of the egg and mm -hmm. I noticed the taste difference. And in talking with my friend, I said, here's an interesting concept, malnourished food. Um, these, <laughs> these, uh, you know, so in other words, the, the, the chicken didn't have everything in its diet that it needed to be a healthy chicken when it laid that egg. I thought we just called that hybrid food. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but impossible meat, right? Um, the, so, but that could play out. I mean, it's more stark to see, I'm sure in a, you know, in a, in a farming stand from a farming standpoint, but, um, 
do the antelope that live on a ecosystem that is balanced and has the the missing components are they have you guys done any research to see man we've noticed that these antelope have better uh you know bone density or better uh they they live a little bit longer or they have better uh um I think they, yeah, it'd be a fawn, right? A, a baby antelope is a fawn. Uh, mm-hmm. Better fawn recruitment. Do they have, uh, maybe even you butcher an antelope from the American prairie and the meat has more, you know, trace elements per, per you know, pound of meat than, say, an antelope coming from eastern Montana on, you know, where more agriculture is going on and, and they're missing some of those elements like like the free-ranging bison and the, uh, maybe a lot, a lot of the Forbes species are gone. And has there been any research to, like, show that even the wildlife, when they're raised or not raised, but they're living in a more pure environment are they healthier than you know the the same species of animal that's adapted to this modified landscape um i would say i'm not aware of the specific bone densities or you know when you see an egg like that you can tell uh right away Mm-hmm. Yeah, this egg is not this. This egg hasn't been able to eat green grass because you know the chlorophyll and other elements turn those yolks to that beautiful dark orange, right? Right. And if it's, if it's only if it's only a uh, uh, meal that they're eating, it's not so much the indoors; it's what they're ingesting. Right. That you know changes the changes the nature of the shell, changes the color, and all that kind of thing. I don't. It's a good, really good question. I don't know anything that uh, has been done. Uh, but I'll bet there's an awful lot of researchers, grad students studying uh, um, uh, pronghorn. I, to your listeners, I would recommend a spectacular book. I believe I've read it three times, possibly four. It's called Built for Speed. And huh. it's all about the, and what happens to a pronghorn in September, um, uh, October, November, December. And it goes through the entire year and what pronghorn are doing different in each, uh, that they change their behavior, they change their motivations. Everything is happening different each month of the year. It's by John Byers, Built for Speed. So if you're like many people, when they first get to know pronghorn, they become pronghorn enthusiasts or fanatics, basically, because they're so unbelievably cool. I mean, just sitting looking at one head on and watching them move and then watching how they live their lives throughout the 12-month calendar. Uh, So what, what people... What studies have been done in terms of, I guess, the quality of life for a pronghorn. So mm-hmm. part of it is what they get to eat. But in natural prairie environments like we work in that have millions of acres still intact, and it looks like it did a thousand years ago, um, they do pretty well with forage. What is difficult for pronghorns, the specialized animals, you know, it's not the same as any other ungulate, is usually man-made impediments. Uh, so, for instance, or uh, things that we have Homo sapiens as a species have done to to disrupt their quality of life or diminish their quality of life. So, for instance, uh, out where we are, there is a the longest pronghorn migration in North America that has been going on for thousands of years. It goes north south. The southern termination point is just south of the Missouri River, or I'd say what used to be the Missouri River. The northern termination point is in the bottom 
uh, southern regions of Alberta and Saskatchewan. In between all that, as they're trying to move, and our CEO you should talk to sometime, our uh, current leader of American Prairie, a spectacular leader, Allison Fox, was out there once standing on a buffalo jump um, with a group of people she was touring, where you could see a long ways across the prairie, we were on top of a 700 foot tall buffalo jump. Wow. And and she, it was, I think about January, I'm gonna get the numbers wrong, but probably about 10 below zero, no wind, but kind of that really low lying fog that comes along with that kind of weather. And out of the fog coming from the north, heading south towards them, they counted over 850 pronghorn in a herd, wow. quietly, quietly going by totally silently. Of course, they don't moo or grunt or anything like that. They're very mm -hmm. quiet. And I mean, that's a once in a lifetime experience. But yeah. that what has happened is as they're trying to get, for instance, they were 30 miles from the last, the bottom of their of their transition, of their migration. They run into something called Fort Peck. We put mm. one of what was at the time in the 1930s, the largest earthen dam in the entire world mm. and dammed up the Missouri River, created a reservoir for ir downstream irrigation and flood control. Um, at the time, uh, not so important anymore for that. And as the pronghorn go across, they break through that ice and hundreds at a time drown. Hundreds mm. every year. And when they're coming back up through in the spring, same thing happens. They get killed as they try to get across what used to be the Missouri River, which was about up to their shoulders. They could walk across it on sandbars. Now it's a 300 foot deep reservoir that mm. goes for uh, about 120 miles. Man. So and, and it disrupts that. Then they get up to where we are and they start hitting east west barbed wire fences. Many, many, many barbed wire fences. You, as you know, they go under a barbed wire right. fence as long as it's about, you know, 18, 20 inches off the deck. But if there's barbs and you take fence after fence after fence after fence walking to Canada, mm -hmm. you're shredding your you're shredding your back with those barbs. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's wintertime and you have two feet of snow, they can't get underneath. They also don't like to jump because they don't want to break their front legs. Their front legs are built for speed, not for strength. So they can't bound or there's no stodding behavior like a mule deer. Um, so if they can't get over, they get kegged up in the corners and now it's 20 below zero. Then the wind starts howling and you'll have a lot of them freeze to death and getting getting jammed in these corners and they die through weather, through cold. Mm. Then, they hit an, then they hit the Burlington Northern train tracks up on the High Line, it's called near Malta, Montana. And if the train if the train plow the train plow has plowed up the edges so the plane, train can get through, mm -hmm. you basically have a little canyon. The, the the train is down in a canyon, right on the tracks, mm -hmm. and the snow has been built up. So the pronghorn are trying to go north south. The train goes east west so over to Glacier Park. The pronghorn fall into this canyon, and now they're standing on the tracks and they can't get out. Freight trains and passenger trains have slaughtered 200 pronghorn at a time oh, who are standing man. on the tracks. When the track when the track when the trains come through at 70 miles an hour and so if the fences don't get them and the trains don't get them and they don't and they don't uh, drown in the reservoir some of them get to the north end of their migration but the gauntlet they have to run is unbelievable and the last thing frankly in my opinion this is an opinion um since it's a podcast and we can share our opinions. Yeah, but right, the, right. The, num the number of tags that are given out to hunt the pronghorn, they are already at a small fragment of the population they used to be at when this prairie world was thriving mm -hmm. uh, back, you know, 50 years before Lewis and Clark showed up or, you know, um, uh, Carl Bodmer or, you know, James Catlin, uh, any of these people who came mm -hmm. out and saw this wondrous sight 
the numbers that used to be out there were extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. And now we're down at a small, small sliver of that. But the fishing game of Montana doesn't like to restrict hunter opportunity. So they want to allow hunting to happen on top of all of what is talked about. So we have this these teeny populations of what used to be a massive population and migration, like wildebeest type of migration of pronghorn just a couple hundred years ago before we mm-hmm. finally wrecked, before we wrecked it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, said, is... we, don't, we don't worry too much about, you know, bone density out of food. They got a lot of other bigger problems. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Going, going on and that, not that that is important. That's a cool science question. It really is. Yeah. But that's a long, long answer to your short question. No, but, it's, uh, it's a good, it's a, I mean, it's just a fun thing to, to explore the intricacies, but also it's important to keep in perspective. It's such a bigger issue than just the quality of the, the prairie species where they do live, you know, like that's a yeah. huge part of it, but it's a big deal. Yeah. And, and you know, part of, <clears throat> part of, um, when you look at land conflict issues of all sorts throughout American history, uh, so much of it is is a part of how we view land rights and land ownership and and um you know what what do you get to do with the land that you quote unquote own and you have rights to and and uh so one person you know the landscape literally follows the personality and viewpoints of the landowner and it changes through time as the landowners change through time. And, and that's a, um, you know, that's a sometimes an, an okay thing, you know, like when, when American prairies in charge of the land, the land looks pretty healthy and pretty good. But if, uh, you know, it's owned by, you know, someone who cares a lot more about what, what can be mined from that ground, what, you know, squeezing every bit of, productivity out of the resource then it's it's going to reflect that and with this patchwork of of you know seemingly limit (laughs) unlimited number of landowners across the across the surface of our country um it's hard to piece together a large-scale uh sanctuary but we're going to we're going to talk about that because I think that's been part of the vision. If I remember back to the original time I heard Sean, which I want to, here's the introduction, everyone. So we're, we're, <laughs> we're getting there. So, um, Sean, as you heard in the, the intro to the podcast is the, he was the founder of American Prairie reserve, which the reserve has been taken off, right. Of the, of the name, there's kind of a rebranding there. Um, it, is there a story behind that? Why the reserve went away or just easier to say American Prairie? Uh, I don't think there's a story. It happened after I was no longer CEO. Oh, gotcha. And I am, I am on the board of directors, but yeah, you know, with, with these kinds of projects now that I think that happened, it was 19, 20 years in. And uh, we started off as the Prairie foundation, Mm. uh, couple of guys and I, uh, Kurt Frazee and Steve Forrest, made up that name in a bar because well, we needed a name. And uh, it sounded like, you know, you can give to this foundation. People, can, Other people can give to this foundation. Um, and yeah. uh, well, you, it has one mission. That's to create this cool big park idea. Mm-hmm. And uh, But after a while, seven or eight years in, we started to get a little bit better at fundraising. We had money in our 
coffers to, and then people started asking us, well, you're a foundation. Would you give us money? Cause we're doing a small prairie in Nebraska and you must support all prairie stuff. And we got a big enough problem here. Yeah. You know, we're given, we're given the wrong idea. So we changed to, I think we changed to American Prairie Reserve. I think that was the next iteration. So okay. constantly fi- fine tuning what it is you're trying to uh, get across. But yeah. American Prairie at this point is trying to say we're a region in a much bigger region of all different kinds of economic and social activity, um, even though we are still on track to create one of the largest wildlife um, assemblages, uh, protected areas, reserve, park, whatever you want to call it, ever mm-hmm. created in the United States. So the, the, the vision hasn't changed one iota, yeah. but the names, the names change with trying to get people to understand or, or conceptualize the idea in the way that is currently important. That's yeah. the best I can say. And that's kind of a clunky well, way to say I f- it. Well, no, I think it was very good. Uh, I knew there had to be a reason behind it. And, and, yeah. uh, I, you know, I, I liked the American Prairie Reserve, but it makes sense when you hear when you hear uh, the reasoning behind the, the, the name change there. But I did first hear about Sean on uh, the Meat Eater podcast. Uh, we've had several guests from Meat Eater or associated with Meat Eater on this show and uh, just a thoughtful group of folks there that care deeply about conservation issues and wildlife issues and and. Um, I couldn't believe it, Sean, when I looked back at when that episode was, I was like, well, what was that? Just a couple of years ago when I heard Sean, it's 2018. And, uh, I couldn't believe that it's been almost six years already. And, um, I don't think I had any gray hair back then. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I'm sure you were probably having, uh, you know, in the back of your mind, maybe thoughts of when you would be, when you'd be, uh, you know, officially retiring or something, but, uh, your life was probably a lot different then. And, uh, but I, I remember when I listened to that, if I, I mean, I've listened to, man, they're on every week. So probably hundreds of episodes since then. Um, but yours would definitely stick out in the top 1% of, of shows that I, I listened to on there and I'm not, you know, it's it's a funny thing how our brains work, like why certain things stand out to us. But I know for sure that it was your passion that you spoke with. Like I, like I could tell you were, you were bought in, you know, uh, one of the, one of the things that, you know, we always complain about what's wrong with society today. What's, you know, what's the, uh, and everyone tries to boil it down to one or two or maybe three things for why, why this ain't the good old days anymore. Right. And, uh, and some of that is just an exaggerated thing that goes on from generation to generation. Um, but I think one of the things though, that, that we maybe have lost a little bit as a society with, with the pursuit of efficiency is pride in our work, um, uh, taking pride in what it is that you do. And for, for things to really function well, and for, especially an organization within the conservation space, which I say all the time on this podcast, when you're in the conservation space, you're always fighting from your back, right? You're always trying to, you, 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 you're trying to change a, 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 a large perception on how things are done. You're trying to convince those around you, Hey, we need to look at these this list of things and we need to try and do something to make it better. Mm -hmm. And, and in order to achieve that, 
it requires people who take pride in their work. And so I think that's probably what really, uh, what I picked up on right away when, when uh, listening to you in that interview. And I could see how much you cared about American Prairie. And um, at that time, I was a, a high school biology teacher. And so, um, you know, that impacted me and, and meat eater as a whole has impacted me and caring more about conservation issues, something I was always interested in, but I just frankly needed to be exposed to more people like Sean who, <laughs> you know, had made it their life's work and had, had, um, you know, it showed that, Hey, this is not just something that's like great to talk about when you're sitting around with your family at the holidays and you want something to talk about. This is something to take action on. And, uh, and, by the way, if you do, because I, I think at that time you guys were 2018. Well, maybe you remember how many acres had you guys uh, put together there in Montana at by 2018? Well, I'm, I'm, yeah, when our staff hears this, they'll say, Sean, you're way off because I will be. It's, well, in the neighborhood of 360,000 something wow. like that That's, um yeah and it's 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 quite a bit more now uh quite a bit more but uh i'm asking to guess when, yeah, you, know, when I, you first but, purchased what was yeah. uh like your first plot of land that you bought mm -hmm. with uh donated money what, what how many acres was that and what was that, that first purchase like uh the first purchase was two parcels separated by about eight miles um and they together they totaled uh, five thousand acres of private land, and they came with mm, I'm going to say about sixteen thousand acres of Bureau of Land Management (BLM) land. So mm -hmm. we would uh, we would as long as we graze something that is on their list of grazable things for the BLM, we chose bison that we'd be allowed to uh, operate on that area uh, year round as well. So yeah, That's awesome. so. To me, in my mind, because of the way our model works, to me, in my mind, then we're getting up around the 20,000-acre world, which to me seemed just massive. To um, After now, after 37 very large-scale, mostly large-scale property purchases, it, it, it doesn't seem very big now, but to stand out there after we did it, and we went into, we went into huge debt to do it, it was very scary, like buying your first home. Yeah. Uh, and he's going, why did we do the middle of the night? You're going, the middle of the day, you're going, this is so cool. The middle of the night, you're going, why did we do that? Yeah, we got, we got to figure out how to pay off that loan, man. Yeah, so, right. What was your so plan? It was, it was always like, a double edged sword. So, but I, I, yeah, it was, it was today, you know, you got to go look at it. Sometimes I get, I'm fortunate enough to get to fly over it sometimes. The whole world, the mm. you know, all the places we have these days. And um, looking back at that first one, it just seemed like it went off the ends of the earth. It was so big. Mm. And, uh, yeah, it's a big, it's a lot different uh, these days. But that still holds a lot of great feelings in most people's hearts that are supporters, board members, staff of American Prairie, because it was um, where we got that piece of property. I already know my job is to think about the next one, the next one, the next one, of course. But a um, really astute board member at the time, a guy named Jeff Miller, came out and toured that. And he goes, you guys, yeah, go get the next one, but make this, focus on making this a small micro demonstration site of almost everything you can affect mm. to make this a small 
baby example of what the bigger thing is going to look like when you scale it up. Mm-hmm. So start, you know, restore taking down fences, restoring whatever grass needs to be restored in very, very little, a few hundred acres needed to be uh, that have been gone into. Um, one was gone into a very small amount of oats and the others were growing alfalfa for winter cattle feed. So the vast majority, though, 96 percent of it was all native prairie, both public and private. So we started on Jeff's example, which, you know, took about five minutes to grasp. It was a really smart idea. We were driving around with his wife and friends and and in the middle of winter, by the way, and uh, uh, he just he just said, well, a quick story about that, going into this story, a sub story inside of it. We're driving along and I was worried, we met him at a, at a dog and pony show thing we were doing at somebody's house on the, on the West Coast. We were traveling all over the United States in people's living rooms, you know, trying to raise 5,000 bucks, mm-hmm. just enough to pay our plane tickets and a little bit more, you know. Yep. And uh, he and his wife got really excited at this, uh, this small gathering uh, in, one of, in one of our other board members' houses. And he said, hey, we would like to maybe probably get involved. When can we come up and visit? And we said, well, I sold him on the spring idea. And the summer's pretty cool. Bring your bug spray. Fall is spectacular. And he goes, well, what about what about right now? This first of February. It is really, really, really cold in Montana. Tons of snow. And I said, well, it can be done. And he goes, how about in two weeks? So they came up, said, well, you know, they're ready to go. Let's do it. And I was nervous that they're just going to see this bleak, you know, Siberian landscape kind of thing <laughs> and be less than unimpressed because they're coming from beautiful, you know, bucolic Mediterranean coast of California. Yeah. Um, they got there and we saw coyotes and we saw golden eagles and other birds that don't move out, you know, stick around. And, um, and, uh, after a couple of days, we're thinking they kept remarking how cool it was to see and that how beautiful it was and that it was not flat. They go, they kept saying every 10 miles, you're driving around way over in the, around in the outback, busting through drifts and this, you know, four wheel drive, older suburban, and just cranking along, trying to keep everything moving and get, show them new stuff. All of a sudden, we stopped. And I, uh, uh, Kurt, my buddy Kurt Frazee, uh, was sitting in the passenger seat, I was driving. And he said, Sean, hold up. So I just got off the gas, put on the brakes. We stopped on this gravel road, you know, 50, 60 miles from the nearest tiny little town uh, way out there. And here came about 60 to 70 elk running full tilt. I don't know why. Wow. It wasn't hunting season. February, wow. there's no hunting season. February is done. And they are flying. I have no idea wh- why. Something spooked them. And, you know, it could have been a cougar, it could have been anything. And they come running right in front of our car and they're deep ditches, you know, the borrow pits. Yeah. They fly all of them like, it, like, like, I don't know if you've ever been diving or a coral reef, the, the, the fish blue tangs, the way they move all in the okay. and all, all together, almost like a murmuration, you know, uh-huh. of birds. And these, they would look, they were moving like birds across the landscape. They jump that in this river, calves, big bulls, um, uh, cows, they fly across the thing, hit the road, and they hit it with about two touches on the road, fly over the next one, and then just go streaking off across the prairie like in one flock of birds and just moving so steadily until they're just out of sight. We sat there totally dead quiet, didn't say a thing. Like, how do you, you don't, you don't, you don't need a caption or that, you know? Right. And you don't need to explain it scientifically and how their hoof size or whatever stupid thing, you know? And we just sat there, <laughs> nobody said anything. And I turned the car off and uh, Jeff from the back said, you know what, you guys in the back seat, he's trying to let, he's trying to tell us we didn't know how good we had it out there. He said, Karen and I just came back from the Serengeti. 
about six weeks ago. And he said, that right there was every bit an African wildlife experience. Wow. And he said, you guys, you guys have, you guys have it. All we need to do is just, just work on this first, this first property and try to create experiences like that. It can be sage grouse leks. People go out at four o'clock in the morning, wait for the sun to come up and here mm. you see the sage grouse dancing on the lek. Uh, show them reptiles because some of our people know how to find really good at finding snakes, both snakes, rattlesnakes, and stuff like that. You know, you know, show them where the the, um, the raptors coming back, like Swainson's from the south, and where they're flood, you know, their 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 babies are fledging and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. And someday get he goes, you don't need two hundred bison, he goes, get ten. That's enough. <laughs> so we actually we both boosted that. We actually started with sixteen, which is a big upgrade. So. Um, hmm. And that turned us to show people what it can be because it's already big enough. You know, 20,000 acres, when you come from Palo Alto, California, 20,000 acres is pretty big. Yeah. And yeah. it was ours to work with. And thanks to the BLM and the public lands uh, rules, we were able to work with that. We did that. Everything from grassland birds to the soils to recreating the native prairie, the places that need to be planted, bringing the, we brought the bison in, uh, turned hunting way, way down. Actually, we turned it off for a while to build up elk populations, pronghorn that sort of thing. And that was one of our best moves early on, even though we're broke. And mm. in fact, we we're way in debt because we just took out a piece of loan, uh, a big loan. And it's, I think that's, so we have a special place in our hearts for that place because it was like a, it was like an art project, that 20,000 yeah. acres. How do we make this more and more look yeah. like and feel and not be smoke and mirrors? It really does feel like what the bigger thing is going to be like. And if people can imagine, then we took them up on a ridge and we say, we're also going 95 miles that way. And we're going 50 miles that way. And we're going south of the river. And then they just, just knock them out of their chair. We just cried yeah, that. Yeah. This, is, this is going to be bigger. This, and they go, so that, we're, we're in, you know? Yeah. That right. is um, like that. That's beautiful. I want to dive into it. Cause it, it's like you, you helped make a dream come true, but making dreams comes true. is like, hard so when you when you first you were taking out loans and buying property it, it how in the world were you paying those back because you weren't really making money off the land were you no no so just no. personally or you were going out and raising the money like well the sad fact was kurt and myself and my wife kayla and the others who uh dakota makes and the very few people who were there at the very beginning we look at each other and you know, if we really were to, you know, say what kind of scare, you know, trying to pay, we're all trying to pay off our houses, you know, trying to save for kids' college education. Yeah. We have extra money. We might have been able to put it on the table, all of us, and buy a used suburban. So that's not going to get us anywhere. <laughs> so we go, okay, let's, let's quit thinking about that. And none of us play the lottery because we don't. It's, the, the odds are so stupid. Yeah. And uh, so we, okay, we need to, we need to plan here to fundraise fast because we want to buy land yeah. fast as fast as we can. We want to build this thing before we're dead. Um, you know, we're in, a, I, was in my, I was in my early 40s. And so we, um, the sad, other sad thing is this was during the 2001, 2002 tech crash, stock market mm. crash. So you guys are too young to remember this, but it was absolutely devastating. The tech market went down and it went all the way across the country and affected everything mm. else in the stock market. So anybody we knew from my previous work that, you know, they're CEOs. They're not billionaires. They're salaried people. They make high salaries, but they're not mm-hmm. super wealthy. They right. didn't work feeling very wealthy at the time. Everybody's stock portfolio was down, so they're tucking in. Their philanthropy shrunk. Yeah. And those are rough, very, very rough. So we took out a year-long loan, believe it or not, for 
$1.8 million, which <laughs> ever done anything like that. And then you're just watching this clock tick of when we're going to default on that loan as to the conservation <laughs> fund and saying how in the world we're going to pull this baby off. And all I can say is we hustled and we did it. And hustle has been the name of the game and still is today in 2023. Uh, yeah. uh, or is it 24? Anyway, so um, it, it's a, it's a, it's the fundraising is grueling, Man, but look. it is, uh, it, it's uh, as you last a year or two or three years, all of a sudden early adopters tell their semi early adopter friends who then want to come to a, another pitch in somebody's house. And you might pick yeah. up that what I used to pick up was $5,000, $10,000 from everybody in the room. Then it starts to be fifty, sixty thousand dollars because people go, "This is this is interesting to watch this guy, who whichever one of us was talking, at the time." You know, these people are surfing a wave, and they may fall off, but it could be fun to be along for this ride as they're trying to pull this thing off. And then we start getting our third property, our fourth property, etc. Paid off the loan in full. Six months late, by the way, had to go begging hat in hand, saying, "Can we please have an extension?" You can't. His blood from a turnip. I don't have it. So. Thankfully, the conservation fund gave us six months in stack extension, and we pulled it off. But we learned a lot about taking loans out and how to fundraise at the same pace, which is really still not easy. Mm. Um, but it's just it's just grinding it forward. It's really inelegant, uh, Nicholas. To your question, yeah. <laughs> and I think from when I was running, I would say it's not a point of demarcation. It's like flipping a switch. But Ali Fox and her fundraising team and her whole organization of fifty-five people. What slowly, if you could do a time lapse from 2001 to now, what you'd see is a group that was started off by just sheer, motivated by sheer terror and operating on muscle, muscling our way forward. Yeah. <laughs> very, very ugly kind of. Uh, it wasn't pretty, but we were winning the day, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And that has turned into much more sophisticated finesse. And that's what organizations are all about. And we set in the values of the organization. There's six main values of organizations we established on day one. One of us is a continuous improvement. One of them is continuous improvement. So how do you do things faster, smarter, better, with less effort and more efficiency, mm. even if that's only 2% over the course of a business quarter or mm -hmm. a percent, one percentage point in the next three weeks? How do we make it faster, easier, less intense, um, less stressful for us, easier for the money to flow, and if you stick with that value, nonstop continuous improvement, you just keep getting better and better. And the snapshot of what's going on now is really spectacular what this the group is. And I've not been leading it for five years now to come back. But uh, it has taken on a life of its own. The leadership is tremendous. And the values and the mission and the, the operating style of the organization is sustainable long after a founder is gone. And that's a really cool thing. Is I'm I'm not there. I'm not puppeteer. I'm not controlling things. We just laid in something where the organization uh, exists because of the nature of its culture and how it approaches things. Yeah. So one day Ali won't. One day Ali's very young, but she won't be there at some point. But I trust that as this thing continues on towards ultimate vision, the next uh, you know turnover of leadership will maintain it. And a lot, there's a lot of organizations out there you can point to. Uh, not not far away from you, 3M 3M Corporation, Minnesota Mining Manufacturing, now must be about ninety thousand employees. Extremely yeah. innovative. Can you name the CEO of 3M? No, no, no. That's the point. And one of the best stocks you could possibly own because they have a culture of innovation and nonstop continuous improvement. 
it doesn't really I mean, you have to have super talented leadership, which Allie is, and I was not bad uh, when I was there. Uh, but the, it's a no easy trick to create an organization that can last beyond any charismatic leader, any founders, that mm, sort of yeah. thing. It can keep keep rolling and you know keep winning the playoffs kind of deal. John, yeah. do you listen to the podcast Founders? Uh, I have sometimes, yeah. And I listen to Guy Raz, How I Built This. Oh, yeah. Kind of That's a good and, one. Yeah, I like those. Um, I, I, I like those kind of things. I I don't stick with it too long if they're just oriented towards people who built a for-profit business. Mm-hmm. Could be Mrs. Field Cookies or the guy who did the Leatherman Knives and all that's really cool. But then they sell them and they get very, very wealthy. And yeah. it's not really the rabbit out of the hat or the outcome that I'm looking for. Uh, mm-hmm. So my podcast is very similar to that. The answers are out there, but it's people who are, you know, powering forward, trying to do a similar entrepreneurial approach, uh, Nicholas. But the outcome is trying to make the world a better place mm-hmm. for nature, biodiversity and wildlife and people. So those are the folks I'm that's you know, you have you're in different phases of your life at certain times. I'm in my sixties now and I want to illuminate stories of entrepreneurs who are trying to make the world a better place. Mm. And uh, mm. a less concerned with cashing out on a stock swap. Mm. What, it, what 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 um boat would you put this is kind of random, because uh, I go back and forth on where I'd put this guy, but what boat would you put Steve Jobs? What bucket would you put him in? Because his like obsession was to make the world's best products they'd ever known. And and he happened to make billions of dollars, but he didn't seem that money motivated, you know. I truly believe he wasn't. And I, when I was, I, I, my wife and I and another fellow, Bill Underwood, uh, started a consulting firm. Bill Underwood still doing it in Santa Cruz, California, in 1984. And our business was to help other businesses go better. So we were with a lot of startup organizations. Sometimes we'd be in a system like Hewlett Packard, 400,000 employees, but they give us a small division and work with that as a sub-organization. Hmm. So it runs the gamut. We worked all over the world in Asia and Europe and uh, Mexico and Canada and just all different kinds of industries. And uh, one of our clients uh, we won early on was Apple Computers. So I spent hundreds of days there in the, in the late 80s. Oh. Wow. And, oh, in the uh, 80s. Wow. In the 80s. Yeah. When John Scully came from PepsiCo to mm-hmm. take John's place. And you walk into Apple and John Scully, and he came from the, uh, you know, Steve Jobs used to kid him. He, the way he got him, he went and met him, he's CEO of Pepsi, and he said, uh, do, would you want to, do you want to just make sugar water for the rest of your life, or would you like to come help try to change the world? That's how, <laughs> yeah. that's how he sucked Scully out of Pepsi. And, uh, and Scully was a good leader for quite some time. And, but you, it's kind of an American Prairie story. You go inside Apple, and uh, I've not been inside for a very like, long time, but I worked there from, say, 87 to about 94, something like that, mm-hmm. is one of our biggest clients. It's, we had, we ran a consulting firm. It's kind of like a law firm, so you had clients, and you're just there mm-hmm. at the time. They rehire you to work with different groups all over the place. I worked with advanced technology and sales group and marketing and product engineering and manufacturing. So I got to go around and see a lot of different people. And they are... I would say hmm, we also worked with lots of other tech companies up and down the street, Sun Microsystems, Oracle, uh, Ampex. And, and you walk in Apple, it is different. They really are a change the world kind of mentality. They think they're, they're not that interested in computers. What they're interested in is putting a product, like you said about 20 minutes ago, um, Kent, 
is quality, you know, mm-hmm. and, and focusing on quality and being passionate about quality. And the stories are legion about jobs completely losing it. When someone mm-hmm. would say, here's the first iPhone, they tried to do another phone. Remember that before that? They did a palm, not the palm, or what it was called. But anyway, they bagged it and came back and finally started cranking out these phones. And they sit and they bring the product and they pass it around, you know, the product development group. And they go, I think we really got it. And this is one of the examples. And Scully stood up and he threw the phone down, uh, is, this, is the story. And he said, this is just glass. People are going to put this in their pocket with their car keys, guys. It's going to scratch. I want mm-hmm. the best glass in the world. Don't call a meeting for this until you have something that's going to upstand. No matter what they have in their pocket, <laughs> it's not going to scratch. And he said, media, media adjourned. And they all, okay. Because he wanted <laughs> yeah. absolute quality. He didn't want to be like everybody else. He wanted absolute quality. And they were yeah. one of the fastest to take, people in advanced technology would not agree with this, but they were the fastest to obsolete a product and just throw it out the window and introduce a new one, even though this last one is still profitable. Mm-hmm. That's just not normal business. You wait yeah. until the profitability ramp starts to come down like this, the glide path, and then the inflection point of a new product possibility comes up. But you wait until the very last minute and try to wring out profits. Um, and uh, they would eject it when it's at the top of this apex here, way before anybody else, because we got something better. Kill it. I don't care how much you love this product, the Apple, Lisa, or whatever it is, done. And, you know, pull it out, sell the rest, sell, sell them for a couple hundred bucks, take them to Goodwill, whatever, we're on to the next thing. It was astounding. Yeah. So to your question, you'll probably have to edit this out because it's a long story. No, this is great. Think, this is great. I think he really, I never met the man, but I think even to when he was dying, he talked about relationships are everything, culture is everything. And if you focus on quality, you don't have to worry too much about what people's nasty things people say about you in the market, in the marketplace and everybody will, you know, you have your closed operating system and people can't get into it. And, you know, they ought to go to Linux and open architecture and all this stuff. So he goes, nope, we're doing it this way because if you start to, slide on quality it's very difficult to get the 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 market reputation back so i i it's a it's an example of you know he wasn't perfect you get yelled at a lot in meetings i think i understand yeah yeah he would completely go ballistic if things weren't going his way he was certainly volatile just like a bill gates anybody else have those reputations follow them yeah but um ken knows right now that I'm losing my mind listening to you talk. Just like so excited about it. Yeah, Nick, Nicholas is Nicholas is ready to go down a uh, business rabbit trail. There, yeah, right there, which, you know, he's 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 just chomping at the bit here. But yeah, no, but... it's all it's all related. And Nick Nicholas talks about that all the time. How how all of this ties together. And I think that that's what it sounds like with with your podcast. Yeah. One thing I wanted to to hit on that um, <clears throat> might get hidden there in the in the conversation that's been going is um, when I reached out to Sean, he said, Hey, yeah, I'd be happy to participate, but um, I'm retired now. And um, perhaps you would like to uh, talk with somebody who isn't. And uh, the answer is, (laughs) is yes. (laughs) We'd love to, we hope to have more, more guests from American Prairie in the future. Um, That'd be good. Yeah. But, but, um, I specifically wanted Sean uh, for, you know, the when I first heard him on that Meat Eater episode years ago. And, um, you know, I've just been following American Prairie since then. I used to, 
I used to send like little links or uh, I'd see like a job posting on LinkedIn and I would send it to a student and be like, hey, see, this is a science career you could do that you would be interested in. You know, you get to be outside, you get to work with, with wildlife, or you get to, you know, be part of prairie restoration work. And uh, so like in that capacity, I've, you know, I've always had that inter- interest in Sean being attached to that. But then when I found out you retired, you know, first it's kind of like, oh, you know, there's the guy. And, but I was immediately impressed because that's a, that's a hard thing. I got to imagine when you've, when you've been there since day one and you've been building this. And like you talked about the, the brute force days of the hustle where you, you're not really sure mm-hmm. how you're going to do it, but you're just going to, uh, as, as my, uh, uh, my dad used to always say all the time, you need to try your brains out before you give up. You know, when you're, when you're in the trying your brains out phase, you yeah. know, like, like it, it becomes part of you, you know? And, and uh, when somebody is able to walk away instead of being carried away in a casket from something uh, as often happens. Right. And, and uh, that's that's never a good outcome when that happens because usually what ends up happening is this beautiful thing goes past its prime eventually as as the 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 main person wears out so does the thing right as they mm-hmm. go everybody goes but you had you had the foresight I guess, the foresight and and bravery to trust somebody else with this thing and it beyond just like hey that's a good business move and that's a good person move it really reflects on the scope in my opinion of what american prairie is it's it's a it's supposed to be everlasting it's supposed Mm -hmm. to like when you i gotta imagine one of the reasons and you kind of alluded to this that you guys were so aggressive with trying to grow right away is you did want to see some of this stuff in your lifetime because changing prairie takes hundreds of years and yeah Yeah. uh, so i mean can you you know you don't have to be too vulnerable here of course but but can you kind of talk about like that evolution for you as you you knew you had to pass it on you had to have a good team ready to go and and trained up and bought in and taken pride in their work um is there is could you could you kind of tell us about that phase as well it was a very interesting process. Uh, I made I made countless mistakes in the very beginning. Uh, one was underestimating how difficult fundraising was. I thought it'd just be like sales because I was more used to for-profit businesses, hmm. and uh, and it's not. It's much more difficult. There's no uh, clear quid pro quo. You know, I have a service or a product. You have. Mm-hmm. We'll exchange this. You're going to be very happy. I'm happy too. The mutuality is super clear. It's really fuzzy and weird, and in my, my in my experience with uh, fundraising, uh, and so I misjudged that by a long shot. It took longer to raise, far longer to raise the money we've raised so far. It's you know approaching half a billion dollars at this point, but I had the notion oh, we'll be there in eight years, not twenty three <laughs> years, and I uh, had a lot of reasons as I looked around that I extrapolated from other situations that I thought. Or we'll be very we'll be very similar. Eventually, this will just catch fire and we're off and running like these other examples. But um, I think the other thing that I'm not sure I misjudged it totally, but I thought we would be at a 
further point now, everybody around us says, how are you guys pulling this off year after year after year? You keep buying land. It keeps getting bigger. The organization is 55 people now. Uh, and it's the, the fundraising gets better every year. How in the world are you doing this? People from around the world are asking us uh, how, how we're not just surviving, but thriving and getting stronger each year in that way. I still thought we would be further. I thought we'd have established packs of wolves. I thought we do have our first grizzly bear, which is pretty exciting. That's Um, awesome. awesome. uh, I haven't been there for over a hundred years and just showed up by accident on a camera trap and that blew us all away. Still celebrating Mm. that. Happened happened two and a half months ago. We're still celebrating. That's awesome. Sean ran straight out there and wrestled that thing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That was the hard part. Having to get it to stay. So I didn't wander (laughs) off to Canada. So, yeah, hopefully it's denned up on one of our western properties right now because that's the last time what was seen just about eight weeks ago. But um, I think I think I think probably ten years or so ago, um, I started realizing that you know I can I can keep running this thing pretty much as long as I want. The board was happy with it. Uh, I was getting we do these performance reviews, three sixty performance reviews where you know you ask about eleven or 10, 12 of our staff and the entire board give you this review of how you're doing on all these criteria in terms of your particular role. And so getting good, solid performance reviews, so I wasn't slipping and no one wanted to kick me out. I could have stayed. So that actually makes it harder. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, most of the time, it was incredibly enjoyable walking into the organization, even though some parts are virtual, and being able to work with the quality of people that we have. Mm-hmm. I miss that a lot. But I knew I was going to miss that a lot because they are just the people we are surrounded with at American Prairie is part of the joy, a big part of the joy of working there. Mm-hmm. And then the incremental high fives every time something like a grizzly bear shows up, which is not very often, but other other species make some progress of some sort, mm-hmm. uh, or another piece of land, or uh, we do some interaction with indigenous tribes nearby, and it goes really well. You know, the the incremental high fives with the team are so much fun. And a lot of other businesses, you don't get a chance to do that, where everybody really cares about it. It's not just making stock price jump this much during this past quarter, that kind of thing, or we ship this many units or whatever. And I've been around a lot of that. But this is these are passionate people who their jobs are aligned with their personal interests. So it's it's pretty I thought you can't. How do you I'm not going to start an organization. There's no way. I'm going to be an entrepreneur, you know, again, this is my second mm-hmm. time around. I don't want to do this again, but I'm, that's going to be a loss. But I think also, you know, I looked at the organization and everything I'd hoped for kind of Apple like, I mean, mm-hmm. there's many other organizations like this, like 3M, uh, WL Gore, there's the Gore-Tex. There's a lot of organizations who have pulled this off. It's not easy, but the organization was such that it didn't rely. It's not going to implode if the founder uh, left. Uh, it had extraordinary strength on its own and people were taking such incredible responsibility. They're self-starters. They're feeling very empowered because of the culture we created. There's values that keep everybody operating the same way. People don't like the values, self-select out, but the values right. also attract the kind of people we want. This is not a country club. It's a hardworking place. Yeah. yeah but um, but uh, the people you're left with when your values are your filter of who comes in and stays and who leaves... Uh, you, eventually, the, the, the organization itself is a continuous project, continuous improvement project, uh, getting ever stronger and ever, ever clearer in how it pursues its vision. So, so that looked really good. And I realized I was less and less important as far as someone who had to keep all uh, that, to be the glue, to be the glue of that. 
And I think some people see themselves as founders and you guys are way too young, but maybe you've seen it on YouTube, the video. There used to be something called the Ed Sullivan Show. And uh -huh. on that Ed Sullivan Show, they always had about every three weeks because it was so cool to see some guy would come out, strange looking guy, usually very skinny because they had to move around fast and he had sticks and plates and he'd go like this and all these yes. plates he's spinning on the sticks. And some people, leaders see their organization as that. I run around and I, and I crank the stick and I keep all the plates from falling. Mm. And if I was to walk off stage left, eventually they'd all fall, right? They actually yeah. believe that about themselves. I felt just the opposite. That's not the right metaphor for our organization. Mm. It is, one thing I can take deep satisfaction is, is these people have a sense of ownership. It's a movement. It's a phenomenon in and of itself, not, re not re requiring any one particular person to be the energy force. And uh, so, and I looked around that made it, I realized, you know, I have to get, a, I have to get over this sense of loss because it's a really big transition. You know, what I'm going to mm -hmm. have to leave behind is very precious and important right. and satisfying and fun for me. I can't take that with me into yeah. retirement. So that was a hard one. Absolutely. And I stumbled a bit and oscillated a bit. Um, but once, you know, Allie, I, chose Ali and the board said, do you want to go outside for CEO or inside? Said, There's one person here I think could do it. I hired her in her late 20s. She's now in her 40s. Uh, and she's never run an organization like this before, but she had the qualities that I was looking for. She's mm. enormously likable. She's incredibly bright and smart. Uh, she is totally obsessed with this vision. Um, she gets along with all kinds of donors from, donors from all walks of life and brings them in such that their lives are improved or made richer for the, for their association. And I watched her, she and I had spent thousands of hours together over all those years mm -hmm. and she's through and through consistent and nothing's going to change. And I figured, you know, this person, and she knows the values inside and out, likes our vision and strategy process, knows how to run it. And I thought, you know, she's 20 years younger than me. And, uh, you know, I've worked all over the world and been in a lot of leadership positions, but she's going to be able to do this just fine. So there was a, I went down to halftime and I told the organization, I said, you know, there's some changes afoot. I've always told you, you know, after I'm 60 or so, I'm going to be wanting to do something very different because this is really intense. Maybe I could work here part-time or something. I, nobody's recruiting or I don't want to go anywhere else, but uh, this is an intense job. <laughs> and I've been doing yeah. it a long time, really 17, 18 years, you know? Yeah. And uh, I said, so what's going to happen is, over time, we're going to make the switch sometime in the next three months. All of you are going to report to Allie, like chief operating officer, and only Allie is going to report to me. And eventually, uh, you know, we'll be kind of co-leading, and eventually she'll take my job. And if I'm still around, I'll be working for her, uh, mm. or I'll do something different. And so I told the whole staff that was a very emotional for me. For them, you know, they didn't had never known any other leader, but they also – they. I got two bar stools and Allie was sitting right next to me and they're looking at her realizing he's probably right. She's amazing. And, yeah. uh, you know, she'll just come right on in and, uh, we are not the same by any means. Yeah. <laughs> Personality -wise, we are not clones. We're not clones. I, she is not made in, in my image. That is for sure. Um, but she's doing every bit and even way more than I would have expected in terms of how she's taken the organization to the next level and all that. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's how that's how it worked. And I think for people who don't want to leave and cling to things, you can be running an insurance company. It doesn't really matter what you're doing. For leaders who cling on to that thing, I think mostly part of it. There's on the surface they may say nobody can run it as good as I, as good as me. I'm the founder. I'm whatever. I'm the CEO. 
Does anybody care about as much as I do? Does anybody see the holistic vision the way I do? But really, I think underneath that is they don't have a vision for themselves beyond the work. So they're afraid of what's Ooh. next. You can only fly fish so much. You can only golf so much. And they go, if I'm not associated, intertwined with this movement and these people in this role, who am I? Mm, and yeah. that is very difficult. And I had, I was lucky I um, had that vision of what that was. And uh, traveling with my wife, uh, I have grandkids, um, a lot of things around the world I wanted to see and do. I didn't want to start a new business. Absolutely not. The podcast mm. is a is a is a um, kind of a uh, retirement hobby, um, but th that I'm doing here, not your podcast. My advance is around there. I wanted to write a book because I've always wanted to write a book. So I, I thought, was just you know, going to ask that. You need to buy, I write probably, a book. I could probably affect more people, really, if I want to affect the world. And staying here and running this organization, because Allie, frankly, in a lot of ways, is going to be able to do it better than I did, because she's been watching very, very, very carefully. And when she that's it and it's her organization to run as a leader and she adjusts her own senior management team the way she wants it it's just gonna be great and i just kept mm -hmm. looking at it and realized there's nothing about this that needs me anymore i'm not adding yeah. special value she's a special person she's going to build this out beautifully so when you all of a sudden realize you're not you're not adding unique value anymore and your ego can handle that you have to ask yourself mm. what is this next phase of life what could be my purpose and my purpose could be Affecting, still affecting things and helping people to make the world a better place. I can write a book about how we started American Prairie and how we got it to a success, even though it has long ways to go. Because mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people are asking about that, so why not write a book about that? And that, I can tell you, writing a book keeps kept me busy, three to four hours a day for two and a half years through the pandemic. It was it was great, and I had to be inside anyway. So right, not that's not right. Doing a lot of other things. It was great to do it. It was a very interesting process it's now um going to be published uh, soon and awesome. then I, in, it's in, called in how it changed. Of, uh the oh. book is called the book is called um the second second best time is now and the idea there is it's twofold twofold one is you know people told us american prairie wasn't going to work because the days of creating large wildlife and uh, uh, land saving ideas are over we did our national parks you know Ken yeah. Burns film, America's Best Idea, Grand Teton, Glacier, Yellowstone, uh, Yosemite, the Grand Canyon, um, Everglades. That's over because it's too contentious. There's too many voices. Uh, they're mm -hmm. going to say, no, you, you can't you know, go ahead, but you can't do this here because we want this for fishing. We want this for logging. We want this for ranching, whatever. This, should, this land should be making money not to have just a bunch of wild animals running around with people to look at. That's, that's a waste. That's not the highest and best use in a capitalist society for land. And people said it's not going to work. But it did, and we did it with a lot of pushback uh, that is not gone even today. And people want to know, how did you pull that off? Because people around the world want to do the same thing, write the book about that. But the idea is, you know, people might have said, you know, the, you know, the Chinese proverb, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. But the second best time is now. So that's the idea to create a massive multi-million acre reserve, a million acres larger than Yellowstone, with everything back and operating a beautifully fluid, uh, undulating ecosystem that has, you know, uh, sometimes it's crashing, sometimes it's waxing and waning in terms of uh, what kind of animals are there and how it's all doing through drought and climate change and all of that. You know, it would have been better if we'd have done it in the early 80s. It definitely would have been better. But the second best time was 2001.
and we pulled it off. We decided to quit our day jobs, uh, which were much easier and a lot more lucrative than running a nonprofit, mm-hmm. and, to, and just to see if we could do it, and we did it. So the idea is if, it's still time to think big around the world and think really big. It could be marine protected areas. It could be all kinds of things that could help make the world a better place. And if you think you missed the window uh, because now there's too much contention, there'll be too much resistance to it, uh, don't think that. Look at what we did. And I, you know, I can describe the resistance, what it was like, and what it's still like now. We're still powering forward. So the second best time is now relates to that. The other, though, guys, is I was in a very comfortable position traveling all over the world with a very lucrative uh, consulting firm that we built from scratch. It's still in business today, Atlas Consulting in Santa Cruz. So it's lasted 40 years in Silicon Valley, yeah. which is not, not easy. And, uh, um, and I... People, when I started thinking in my late 30s, there's something else. This is a, this is, I mean, we're really helping people. We're helping organizations do better. And uh, the people inside the organizations feel like they're part of an aligned organization and learning about teamwork and leadership a lot better. So we were, it felt meaningful and satisfying to me. So it was not just for money. And, but I started thinking there's something else in my late 30s and people thought I was nuts. We'd worked so hard to build up business from scratch. Used to have, you know, I think I had braces on my teeth. I had a $90 wool suit from Sears and I had a 72 Volkswagen camper bus. And that's what I was driving around Silicon Valley and trying to sell our consulting firms. That's awesome. In 1985. That's really and, awesome. Uh, Bill, Bill, Bill had a beat up like 11 year old Toyota. That's what he, And we'd all park in the back of Apple and other, so we saw, cause there's Lexuses and Audis in the front. And, oh, yeah. So anyway, I think, I think, you know, so we built this thing, Catalyst, very successful. Quite a few, I don't know, at its height, we had 20-some-odd employees and really rolling. Why would I leave when that's when you really start to make money in a law firm or a consulting firm uh, when you're leveraging other people? And uh, I started thinking, I just want to, I can't see myself doing this for the rest of my life. Uh, Mm -hmm. And one is it doesn't have anything that's lasting, lasting value. So, for instance, we'd work with, you know, Sun Microsystems, and then it'd break up and Oracle bought Sun Microsystems. And it's not that we wrecked it. Everything went great. But in business, things are shifting and changing all the time. You know, companies are buying each other. And I go back and look at all this hard work we did to a very success and got paid quite well for doing it. Six years later, the thing is gone. It's dissolved mm-hmm. into the ether. You know, yeah. so I try to be Buddhist and, you know, stick with the non-attachment idea uh, and looking at that. But there's something inside me about being involved in something that had lasting value. And so I kind of went on a quest for about four years, moved back to Montana, and looked at all, I had six or seven different businesses I was thinking of, all about creating something of lasting value. This happened. And that, I think, was, you know, the most uh, incredible thing is to realize long after I'm gone, 200 years from now, this place is still going to be here and being visited and valued and hopefully cherished by an awful lot of people from all around the world. Mm. So to leave something of lasting value is really, really quite a special thing to be able to work on. So I felt like it's on track. I can do it. it, We set it up. We got it moving. We got took it through the most difficult years. We've got an amazing staff of people to carry it forward. I can, uh, if I want to affect the world, I can write a book about how we did that. And some people will read that. And maybe the second best time is now also looks at, say you're in your late 30s, early 40s, and are thinking about 
wouldn't really like to quit my day job and do something I've always been thinking about in the back of my mind mm -hmm. uh, to try to start or yeah. rather than start it like we did to go join it. You could join Southern Poverty Law Center or, you know, Earth Justice or something like that. Any of these amazing organizations that do important work uh, in the world. Uh, you can go join or start something. What if I was to quit and take less of a salary, take a big risk, move across the country, whatever it might be. And maybe, yeah, it would have been better if you did that in your late 20s and early 30s before you had a mortgage. <laughs> Everything else starts to build in your life, but maybe your maybe your early forties, late forties, early fifties—that's that's the second best time to do it too, yeah. Yeah, before it's too late to really mm. give it a shot. Just give it a shot. So I'm trying to get people to possibly make a move, but if you're trying to start something big like American Prairie, that don't think those days have passed us. You can still think big. Mm. Yeah, so yeah. that's that's why that's why we need to do that. It's it's yeah, it's beautifully said, and there's so many lessons to pull out of there for for um you know all of all of us, right? The Nicholas and myself and the listeners and, and, uh, just that understanding. We talk about it all the time, Nicholas, seeing value, uh, beyond the dollar. And, um, that's, that's, uh, what that is in living proof right there in, in Sean's, uh, mission for his, his life. And, and Sean, man, we could talk to you forever. This is, it's just highly enjoyable yeah. uh, sitting here and, and, and listening to, to what you've done. Um, maybe we can uh, have you back sometime. That'd be, that'd be great to talk about a lot of the other sure. work you've done in, in, um, other countries, um, specifically in Africa. I know you've, mm -hmm. you're on a few, uh, conservation boards there and, and, mm -hmm. uh, just really impressive work. Uh, before we wrap up though, um, just to kind of bring things back to, uh, what's going on with, with American Prairie as far as, um, you know, at least when you, uh, retired, maybe we can, we could go to that point, but I know you're still on the board there. Um, so you probably have, you know, a pretty good idea what's, what's current. Um, what is the size now of American Prairie? Uh, how many acres has American Prairie grown to? And, um, could you maybe just give us a rundown on like, because at, at least when I heard about the interview and how I've understood in the past, American Prairie is quite open to, uh, public enjoyment, right. To go and, and camp and, and see the, you know, wildlife and, and tour the prairie. Um, could you kind of like maybe give us an idea of what, what folks can do to enjoy and be a part of the American Prairie experience? Yeah. Well, at this point, one of the things I like about the model uh, that people may not realize when they first look at American Prairie is that, well, these guys, at the simplest form, are first building the building the, um, the landscape, right? Mm -hmm. And putting the habitat all back together so you can have all, these, all this wildlife and biodiversity. And it looks like we go raise money and we buy land. Uh, paid off the loans, then go raise more money and buy land, which are much, much better at these days. And uh, in fact, the vast majority of the land is all paid all paid for free and clear because uh, of a, just better fundraising and all that kind of thing. But, mm. uh, but the interesting thing, and one of the reasons of the top 10 places that Nature Conservancy and others designated all across the Northern Great Plains, all the way down to Nebraska, as possibilities for a project like this, is this had certain conditions and one of the, that made it to put it to the top as the best place to do it. One of those conditions is when we're assembling it, 20% of the land is private. Uh, you only have to buy 20% of the land. The rest of the land is public land. Mm. So we're gluing together millions of acres 
of Bureau of Land Management land, mostly some state Love school it. sections, it's called, and uh, gluing those onto already existing smaller reserves. Um, and uh, a really big one called the Charles M. Russell Wildlife Preserve, which is a Fish and Wildlife Service out of the Interior Department. So uh, we're putting things together that all have the same vision. And just recently, with Tracy Stone Manning, head of the BLM, she announced that, you know, we've been looking at BLM through the Taylor Grazing Act from the 1930s, mm-hmm. that you must grow livestock for food on it, although people raise rodeo horses and other things too, mm-hmm. and llamas and stuff. Uh, but we're going to change that now that also it is okay to have BLM land under your, um, your, you have the privileges to be able to manage it. And it is a privilege. It can be taken away at any time. Mm. That's not a right, uh, for conservation. And that is a legitimate use for the land. Mm. So if you want to, if you want to, rather than emphasize or optimize for, livestock production and profitability as long as you do that in the way we want that land managed and you keep the land healthy and you know they're far beyond the take half leave half idea these days they're looking for really strong biodiversity so the room for grassland birds and everything like that yeah you can graze your cattle on that for part 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 of the year for ridiculously cheap fee and but if you if you what you want to do is optimize the biodiversity and nature on that land you can also do that too and that's a recent change. And we knew, it, we bet, we made a bet. We didn't know, you never really know. We made a bet that eventually that would come. 21 years later, that came down from the Interior Department with the head of the BLM. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of people got a little upset about that, you know, and raised the Taylor Grazing Act flag. But she goes, guys, you don't have a leg to stand on. This is This can be used in this way. We have plenty of precedent all around the United States, you know, Nevada and New Mexico and Arizona, et cetera, et cetera. It's uh, it's uh, we've moved on from the blunt instrument of the Taylor Grazing Act that being the mm-hmm. only way, the only justification of using public lands. So as long as it is open to the public, which we completely are. So with that's important. When I say a number, and I'm going to say roughly 460,000 acres right now wow. is how large that's American wonderful. Prairie is. 75 to 80 percent of that is public land, and yes, we get to we have the privilege of administering it. Um, we have our bison out on that public land. Um, uh, we um, uh, don't damage it in any way. Whenever we're allowed to, we take down interior restoration fences because we don't need them anymore. And to the extent that the BLM will allow us to affect things like that, um, uh, we do to try to make it meld more the, the focus on our private land. The real wildlife things we're doing on our our private land, because we control how much hunting happens, we can't control that on BLM, we're trying to create uh, source areas for wildlife that will then spill over onto the public lands. Right now, the public lands are largely empty. If you drive across this region, sadly, you'll see very little wildlife out there as compared to what used to be there. Mm. And we want to change that. And you can't just go dump out a bunch of elk on load them up in a truck and go dump them out on the public lands, but you can control how many elk are on your lands and grow wildlife to actually spill over. And you have, you have abundance on the public lands. Once again, we're shooting for Mm -hmm. massive abundance on the public lands. And it's been devastated over the last 115 years. So it's, it's no small thing, as you said earlier, the idea of visitation, we have thousands of people coming from around the world and visiting now. We have set up a number of really cool campgrounds. Some are more primitive. Some have hot showers and uh, flush toilets, everything like that. And uh, we have a, a, 
chat system, which is extraordinarily popular. Uh, we help people understand how to use Onyx and different kinds of mapping so you can find your way onto the public lands. We never use our private land to block access to public lands ever. Mm. So we'll, where a lot of people are trying to keep you out of public lands, you've seen some of the lawsuits yep. for corner hopping and stuff like that in Wyoming. We're just yeah. the opposite. We're taking down gates and putting in car gates so you don't have to worry about leaving the gate open because there's, mm. there's, a, there's a double cattle guard there because bison could jump a single one. So oh, you can wow. just go right right on through, and there's none of this, hey, you got to close the gate stuff, because they're in the gate. So mm-hmm. uh, we make it easy for the public to do navigate out there in this huge swath of land that many of them didn't even know they own. And we consider mm-hmm. the public, everybody around the world, American taxpayer, all indigenous tribes, they are the owners and the rightful mm-hmm. users of these public lands. And when we're done... Uh, 80% of it's going to be public land. We have just changed the easier to Love get that. to and more wildlife on it for the public to be blown away by and enjoy. Yeah. Um, that's how, that's how it works. It's really, that ratio is really, really important uh, to know. Um, so yeah, there's, that's um, awesome. The BLM does all the restrictions that you can't take a back, go out there and dig it up. You can't go out there and do donuts on four wheelers and tear up the prairie. And that's right. their jurisdiction to, which they do a really good job of yeah. actually. So yeah, that's so you can go see it. Absolutely. Just get on the website. It'll tell you it, there's too much to see. You'd have to come back every year for the rest of your life and you still wouldn't make it in. <laughs> and how big yeah. it is now. You know how big it is now. And it's right. getting bigger. Uh, yeah. So you just have to be very careful about how do you spend your two weeks, three weeks, four days, whatever it might be. It's really, really big. I've walked it twice. And we'll walk and canoe and bike, mountain bike, to cross about 185 miles east to west. Wow. And I know the land pretty well. It takes a long time to work across that. I bet. But it's so cool. And the topography it goes through and what you see as you go along, uh, what there is now, and then just imagine what will be there in 20 or 30 years. I hope I get to see it all. And it's, you know, every, every little, every year that goes by, something changes. To have a grizzly bear show up, you know, just two months ago, we've been waiting since 2001 for that. And to get that photograph. And this is really big, healthy male bear. And uh, it was just like, they did it. You know, they came either from Greater Yellowstone or they came from the Rocky Mountain Front. We don't, until they do hair sample, work their way back to the genetics of it and find out who they're, you know, where they came from uh, in terms of their lineage. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't know, but they made it hundreds of miles yeah. back up the grasslands. Wolves are getting there too. Unfortunately, they are, the uh, current administration, uh, governor and legislature is high on shooting wolves. So we hope, you know, that too will pass and wolves will be allowed to exist rather than getting shot on site. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but it's, you know, so that's what it is. It's a, it's a rapidly nonstop ever changing landscape because the project is still in way, but you get to come in and visit it because it's on your public lands and enjoy, meet some of our people who are working on stuff, see the projects in action, sit out there and sometimes get to see the Northern Lights, definitely the Milky Way every night if it's not cloudy and just hear the coyotes howling on the wind blow in total silence. And uh, it's one of the darkest places in the lower 48 states as far as dark skies. So it's there. It's ready to be enjoyed. And it just gets better of year. Yeah. Man, what a beautiful picture. And uh, something that, uh, you know, is definitely on my list of places to go and hit. In fact, I have right here from the North American Prairie Conference this year, I have my American Prairie map and guide right here on my desk. Um, the it's, it's definitely on my list though, to get out there and, and check it out and, and, uh, 
enjoy that clean air and uh, clear water and mm-hmm. and uh, healthy soils and plants and the animals that all belong there and uh, are just a testament, just like that grizzly bear showing up. Mm-hmm. That's a, you can't manipulate that. You know, that's just a, it, the only way he's going to be there is because it looks like a spot he should be. And um, that's, that's a, I think that's a great, a great way to wrap it up. And uh, to last thing explain. I, last, last thing I didn't say is we intentionally have made it as wild as possible not mm-hmm. in any contrived way, but just letting it be itself rather mm-hmm. than trying to make, you know, safety guardrails everywhere and all this kind of thing. And mm-hmm. rangers, rangers every four miles to stop and talk to and give you guidance and stuff like that. It's not there and it may right. never be there. So prepared for wildness means bring a four wheel drive, bring some extra water and bring some bear spray. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I love that's that. Really cool. It's a rough place. That. That's what it's supposed to be. Yep. I love that. It's, it's something that I think every American should, uh, uh, put on their bucket list of places to visit. And yeah. I love the model of the public to private ownership and incredibly generous to, uh, provide access to those landlocked, landlocked portions of public land. Um, just, uh, uh, truly a, a gift to, to America, to, uh, not just the folks that care about conservation projects, but just people who want to, be closer to uh, our ecosystems that we have here in our country. So thank you so much, Sean, for giving us some time, but more importantly, thank you for you and your team through the years, giving us American Prairie and Mm -hmm. for um, your selfless work there and, and your selfless work as you continue on, uh, not just there, but in the other places you're involved. And could you uh, give a a quick uh, shout for your book and your podcast again? So folks can book uh, is, my book is uh, at the, uh, is called The Second Best Time Is Now, and uh, at the moment it, it will be uh, looks like it'll be published early in 2025 by Tory House Press. You okay. know, think timelines and other things change, but that's the trajectory it's on at the moment. Uh, the podcast is about to launch in about two weeks. It's called The Answers Are Out There. Hmm. So the idea that you know all these and what we feel are intractable problems, particularly for nature-based uh, topics. I've traveled to over 50 countries around the world. And from what I've, there's people out there that are just doing amazing work. But our news, which seems to be geared towards things that make us mad and make us depressed, crowds out a lot of this good news. So I want particularly young people to hear that there are extraordinary people out there, much younger than me, doing amazing work for the future of the planet and for you as part of the public. They're out there you know, really busting their hinds in to try to create better spots for nature and biodiversity and wildlife. So I'm interviewing people all over the world and trying to connect you to them so you can hear their stories first person, feel like you got some good news in your day, maybe go visit their place and realize, you know, here's somebody in their early 30s, late 20s, you know, 40s, whatever, quit their day job to do this for us. I want to introduce mm-hmm. you to those amazing, I want to introduce you to those amazing people. That's what it's about. Yeah, I love that. That's a great, that's a great, mission there as well and and uh something that we're all on board with here at hoxie who is our sponsor for the prairie farm podcast um please if you have not yet if you feel we're worth a five-star review go ahead and do that that helps uh, get the word out on the podcast and and uh, helps people hear the great story that uh, sean shared with us today and all the other stories that we've had in the past um 
do stay tuned to the podcast every week. We will ha- have uh, our full-length Friday episodes going again uh, soon. We are in podcasting season on the farm. Uh, I'm not in the, the field currently this time of year, so I'm able to log those office hours. But um, <clears throat> uh, stay tuned for uh, Nicholas's water docu-series that's coming out soon. And then also the third episode of Prehistoric Prairie uh, should be ready very soon as well. But thank you again, Sean. Thank you, uh, Nicholas, for <clears throat> helping host this one. As Always well, a pleasure. Are... Just hanging yeah. out, just listening to Sean be a legend over there. Heart... And by the way, your wife was totally wrong. She was wrong. It was great having you having you uh, <laughs> uh, go on about. Uh, I know you had commented that the most dangerous thing someone could say is let you just go on and on, but it was amazing. I'm going to tell her that. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. tell you that. Nigga, is- well, maybe just leave my name out of it. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, well, she'll she'll listen to it, and I'll be beautiful and polished, and I'll say, yeah, they edited about 45 minutes. Out. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, I'm used be- to that. That's all right. Yeah. Just, just keep all the just keep all the good stuff I put in there and any stupid stuff just cut that out please yeah yeah <laughs> yeah well it, it's all it's all good we had a great conversation with you and as everyone tuning in heard today yet again conservation happens one mind at a time. <laughs> <laughs>